Ushers, if you guys would, go ahead and come on down. I'm going to start talking, but if you guys would come on and take the offering, we would appreciate it. I'm going to mention some, uh, the names of some TV shows, movies, and books. Some of them are current, some of them are older. And if you're a fan of any of these, or if you have uh, seen any of these, or read any of these, if you, maybe if you liked it, uh, you know, just say yes. You can shout yes. You can, however you want to do that, but uh, just say yes, okay? So, and this isn't a test, by the way. Uh, just, you know, I'll read them out and see what you think. The Walking Dead. Any fans? All right, good, good, good. Uh, the Hunger Games. All right. Mad Max Fury Road. Anybody see that? The <laughs> same person up there is like everything. <laughs> Any of the Planet of the Apes? Okay. Terminator 2. I'll be back. Here's a throwback. Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Any of the older folks here that may have seen that? Okay. And then how about Divergent, Insurgent, or Allegiant? Any of those series of books and movies? Okay. Those are just a few of the hundreds of books and movies and TV shows that I could mention that all deal with apocalyptic themes or post-apocalyptic themes. Uh, The apocalypse, uh, the end times, prophecy, uh, however you'd like to refer to it, those things are very much on the front and center of the collective American psyche these days. Surveys have repeatedly shown that people in church... Like when they ask them, what would you like uh, for your pastor to preach on? Surveys have repeatedly shown over the years, number one thing that people are interested in, in is the end times. That's what, that's what people want to hear about. And so if that's where you're at today, if you want to hear about the end times, you came on a good Sunday, because that's what we're going to talk about. Jesus speaks on that very topic in the passage of scripture that we're going to look at today. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, and I want to welcome those who are listening to us by podcast this morning, and then for all of you who are new to City Church, uh, let me just kind of give you a little bit of context here. We're in a series that's called The Last Days of Jesus Christ. Chapter 13 in the Gospel of Mark occurs on Wednesday evening, less than two days before Jesus' crucifixion on Friday. Earlier in the day on Wednesday, Jesus had taught in the temple. That was the center of Israel's religion. And he had declared that the temple was obsolete because of his presence now in the world. Now, last week, uh, Sean Little did a marvelous job of covering the first 23 verses of chapter 13. But here's the problem. My passage that I'm looking at today, the rest of chapter 13, overlaps with some of Sean's passage. So what I'm going to have to do this morning is summarize some of the verses that Sean covered uh, last week. So here's what I'm going to do so that you can follow along. Uh, Here's how I've structured this talk. First of all, I want to give you unsigns of the end times. Then I want to give you two signs of the end times. So unsigns. That's like not really signs. Two signs of the end times. Then we're going to ask the question, when are the end times? Anybody here interested in that one? When are the end times? I'm going to give you a specific date today. I'm kidding you. I'm not going to do that. And then finally, watching for the end times. Let me say it one more time. Unsigns of the end times. Two signs of the end times. When are the end times? And then watching for the end times. Okay. 
So let's start with the first one, I, uh, the one that I'm calling unsigns of the end times. Now again, Sean covered this last week. It's in chapter 13, the first 13 verses of chapter 13. And since I'm summarizing, I'm not going to read all of those verses. But after declaring the temple obsolete, Jesus left the temple. And as he was walking away from it, one of his disciples starts to go on and on and on about this uh, about how big and how beautiful uh, the temple is. I think, you know how I think this would have happened? Much like a person uh, might have looked at the Twin Towers before 9-11. And they would say, look at those things. Look how big they are. Look how beautiful they are. And Jesus surprises his disciples when he tells them, he says that that's, that massive, indestructible-looking temple that you so admire, he says, it's going to be reduced to rubble in the very near future. Now, the disciples couldn't have known, but Jesus was speaking about something that was still over 35 years into the future. 35 years into the future. In AD 70, the Roman general Titus would come in and he would destroy all of Jerusalem, including the temple. By the way, in fact, if you've ever seen uh, like pictures of people praying uh, at the, what's called the Wailing Wall in, in Israel, in Jerusalem. Uh, that wall, let's go ahead and put that up on the, put, put that picture up if you would, so that we can see it. Is it up there? Because I can't see it. All right, go ahead, it's up there. Uh, that wall is all that is left of the temple after Titus's invasion in AD 70, okay? When Jesus mentions the temple's destruction, something clicks with his disciples, and they start thinking that what he's referring to is the end of, of human history. They start thinking, well, that must be near. Okay? And so they ask Jesus two questions in verse 4 that any reasonable person would have asked. Here they are. They ask, when will these things happen? And then they ask, what will be the signs that these things are about to be fulfilled? Okay, that's, in, that's in verse 4. Now, now, here's what Jesus does. He actually answers these questions in reverse. He starts with their question about the signs of the end of the world. And he says in the first 13 verses, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, because we're not going to read these, but he says in the first 13 verses, he says, look, history is going to continue to repeat itself over and over and over. There are going to be wars. There are going to be rumors of wars. There are going to be natural disasters like earthquakes and famines. There are going to be uh, Christians who are persecuted for their faith. There are going to be all kinds of false messiahs that are going to come out of the woodwork. There are going to be all kinds of false prophets that are going to come. People like Joseph uh, Smith of the Mormons, Muhammad of Islam. And he says, he says, when all of this happens, everyone is going to start thinking that all of these things are the signs of the end of the age. And he says, here's what he says, hear me now on this, hear me. He says, none of those signs, none of those are signs of the end of the age. Wars, rumors of wars, famines, false prophets, earthquakes, terrorists in the Middle East, none of those are signs of the end of the age. Those are, they're, they're like unsigns. Look at verse 7. Uh, we, I don't have it on the, 
on the screen up here, but look at it. Look at verse 7. Such things, he says, must happen, but the end is still to come. He's saying, he's saying those aren't signs. Those aren't signs. All of that's just life in a fallen world. So, like, don't get worked up about all of that speculation. Yes, all of human history is moving toward God's plan for the end of this world, but don't get caught up trying to interpret contemporary events. Now, personally, I find that extremely comforting. Jesus is telling his disciples not to be rattled by all of those things. Why? Why does he tell them that? Why does he warn them? And if you read those first 13 verses, there's all sorts of warnings in those verses. Why does he warn them about not getting rattled by all of that stuff? Well, here's why. It's because when when people, including Christians, when people get to thinking that the end of the world is near, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but they do really weird things. Like they become doomsday preppers, and they go off the grid, and they isolate themselves, and they bury their money in the backyard, and they start stocking supplies for the end of the world, and they grow really long beards. (laughs) And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Don't do that weird stuff. What he's most concerned about, if you, if you read those verses, what he's most concerned about is that we don't allow ourselves to get distracted from proclaiming the gospel to the world. And so he's saying, he's saying you guys, don't get distracted by all that. Get out there. Don't, don't isolate yourselves. You know? Don't become doomsday preppers. Get out there. Live with everyone else. Rub shoulders with people. Let them see Christ in you, not the weirdo in you. Let them see Christ in you. Because the stuff that all of you think are signs of the end are not signs at all. In fact, they're unsigns of the end times. Okay, let's move on. But Jesus does go ahead and give them two signs of the end times. Okay, two signs of the end times. And this is covered in verses 14 uh, through 31, okay? The first sign, and and again, Sean talked about this last week. The first sign, in verse 14, he calls the abomination of desolation. In short, Jesus is referring to something that happens in the very middle of a seven-year period of time, still in the future, often referred to as the tribulation. Now, at the beginning of this seven-year period, a world leader that the Bible calls an antichrist, this world leader will broker a peace treaty with Israel in the Middle East. Now, imagine, imagine that for a moment. Do you know how many world leaders have tried to broker a peace treaty in the Middle East and have failed? Do you realize how many have tried, to fa- have tried that and failed? But this, this antichrist person, this world leader person, is going to be able uh, to do that. And listen to this. This is, this is even, to me, what is more amazing about this. As part of this peace treaty, Israel's temple that was, that was torn down back in AD 70, right? And that the only part that's left there is the Wailing Wall that we saw a minute ago. Uh, Israel's temple that was torn down is going to be rebuilt. Now, consider the staggering implications of that, that this temple is going to be rebuilt. Right now, 
the Temple Mount in Jerusalem is not only the holy site for Israel, it is also the holy site for Islam as well. And right now, sitting in the very place that the temple should go is the Islamic Dome of the Rock. We've got a picture of that. Are we putting that up? There we go. That's sitting right where the temple would go. Now, if Israel were to try to rebuild their temple today, it would cause an immediate world war. In order for this to happen, this world leader antichrist will seemingly miraculously convince Islam to allow that to be destroyed in order to allow Israel to rebuild their temple. By the way, you might not even know this, but for some time in Israel, the Temple Institute has been making plans to rebuild this temple. And back in April, they announced that they're Uh, ready to begin looking for Jewish priests who are eligible to serve in the temple. Amazing that this Antichrist world leader is going to be able to convince Islam to allow the Dome of the Rock to be destroyed so that the temple can be built there. So this seven-year period, the first half of this seven-year period this antichrist world leader has negotiated this peace treaty with Israel and all is going to be well in the first half of this seven-year period of time called the tribulation. Peace for Israel that Israel hasn't experienced really since AD 70, since they were driven out of Jerusalem. But this antichrist person is cunningly deceptive. And halfway through, he breaks his peace treaty with Israel, and he he stops the sacrifices, and he, he stands in the temple, and he proclaims himself to be God. And that happens, again, at the three and a half year mark of the tribulation. And that is what Jesus is referring to here as the abomination of desolation. And at that point, at that three and a half year mark, Jesus describes in verses 15 through 23, he says, essentially, all hell will literally break loose on the earth. He says in verse 19, go ahead and put that up on the screen. He says, those days, he's talking about this three and a half year period. He says, those days will be days of distress unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now. And never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. Now I want you to think about the magnitude of what he's saying. All of the horrors in world history won't compare to this three and a half year period of time. Think about that. During World War I, there was one 10 month period where 70,000 soldiers died a month. That doesn't compare to what's going to happen in this three-and-a-half-year period of time. During World War II, the slaughter of six million Jews doesn't compare to what's going to happen in this period of time. Between 1958 and 1962, the Great Chinese Famine that killed 45 million people under Chairman Mao doesn't compare to what's going to happen in those three-and-a-half years of the Tribulation. The Khmer Rouge, uh, the reign of terror that destroyed Cambodia and murdered two-and-a-half to three million people not going to be anything like is going to happen in this three and a half year period of time. It's going to be, Jesus says, absolute hell on earth. 
And when you see this happen, Jesus says in those verses, drop and cover, run for the hills, get prepared, because it is going to be bad. Now, here's the good news. <laughs> Aren't you? <laughs> You're probably hungry for some good news after that. Here's some good news. Jesus doesn't mention it here in this passage for reasons that I just don't have time to go into today, and I'm sorry about that, but the good news is that the New Testament teaches that those who have believed in Christ before that tribulation will not have to experience that. Now, what's that? It's a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a doctrine called the pre-tribulation rapture, Okay. What he's saying is that if you've come to Christ before that tribulation, you will be raptured. You will go to be with God. And so you don't have to go through that tribulation. Now, I just want to tell you that there are some people that are mid-tribulation people, and then there are some people that are post-tribulation. They believe that, you know, the Bible teaches that, like, after the tribulation, that you are taken with God. Here's the way I go with this. I think maybe Jesus is going to do it this way. Whatever you believe, wherever you are on that spectrum... That's when you're going to go. It's a lot safer to be a pre-trib person than it is a post-trib person, right? So choose that way. Or the other thing you could do is if you believe in one of those things, you could just stand real close to me. And when I go, just grab a hold of my leg and I go with me. Okay. Now, some of those people that believe that won't have to go through the tribulation, some of those will be long dead, of course. Some, some will still be alive when that happens, but God will take us away prior to the tribulation. But for those who haven't believed, if they're still alive at this time, they will experience this time of enormous suffering. And as I said, I'm sorry, I just don't have time to go into why Jesus doesn't talk about that here uh, more this morning. Now, that's where Sean pa- Sean's passage ended last week. So beginning in verse 24... Jesus begins to speak about the second sign of the end times. The first one is that three-and-a-half-year point, the abomination of desolation. Jesus begins to speak now in verse 24 about the second sign of the end times. Let's read it. We'll put the verses up on the screen for you. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Would you mind to throw me that bottle of water that's right there? Thank you. I appreciate it. You're limping. I'm sorry, man. You have to do that. I'm just thirsty. That wasn't part of the sermon there. Okay. Uh, The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming. The Son of Man is Jesus. Coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the end of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Those are people who have come to Christ through after the tribulation, okay? Now learn this lesson, he says, from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Now, now what's he talking about here? Well, he's talking about the second coming of Christ, his second coming. Jesus came once uh, to the earth. And in that time that he came to the earth, he was rejected by humanity. He was crucified on a Roman cross. He was raised from the dead. And then he, was, and then he ascended into heaven. But God's promise has always been that Jesus is going to return and set everything to rights on the earth. Like if you've, if you've ever seen injustice or experienced injustice and wanted justice, 
If you've ever wanted healing for diseases that we can't heal, maybe you've had someone, uh, maybe you have someone that you love who has something, a disease that can't be healed. Maybe you've had someone who, who died uh, with a disease that we haven't figured out how to heal. If you've ever grown tired of the wealthy victimizing the poor, you may not know it, but what you're doing is that you're anticipating the second coming of Christ. Think back to the beginning of creation, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Paradise, right? The world was paradise. Why is the Garden of Eden paradise? Well, it's because the presence of God was there. The absolute, immediate presence of God. In the presence of God's overwhelming beauty and his power and glory and holiness, nothing dead, nothing distressed, nothing broken, nothing evil, nothing twisted existed. That's why it was paradise, because the presence of God was there. But when Adam and Eve decided that they wanted to be their own lords, the Bible says that the presence of God was withdrawn, and the earth became a place of brokenness, and it became a place of coldness. It became a place of disease and of death and of hunger, and of violence, and of injustice, and a place of poverty. But God promised that in spite of human sin, that one day he would make the world Eden again. And that's what the second coming is about. God's presence on the earth in Jesus to rid the world of evil, to envelop the entire world, and to make it the Garden of Eden again. The whole world all perfected, all beautified, the end of death, the end of disease, the end of hunger, the end of poverty, the end of injustice, the end of violence. That's what the second coming is all about. It's about Jesus coming to restore and renew all of creation. That's what it's about. If you've ever longed for justice, for wholeness, for an end to Violence and racism and all of those things. What you're longing for is what God has promised is going to happen. The second coming of Jesus Christ. So those are the two signs that Jesus gives about the end times. The tribulation, especially the three and a half year mark where it's called the abomination of desolation. Or that great antichrist world leader will stand in the temple and declare that he's God. And then this second coming, when, when, when suddenly you will see Christ coming in the clouds with power and glory. And he will literally, physically rule the earth. And the earth will be wiped free of all of the effect of sin in the world. Okay, let's move on. Third point. Remember the first question now that the disciples asked Jesus. Remember Jesus answered their questions uh, in reverse order. The first question that they wanted to know are when are the end times? When are the end times? This is a question that's on everybody's mind. You need to understand that throughout history, starting all the way back in the year 66 AD, people have wrongly proposed hundreds of dates for the end of the world. In fact, maybe some of you guys know this, but... Uh, the most recent time was this past summer. Uh, in, in fact, it was just a few weeks ago. There was a YouTube video uh, published by the channel End Time Prophecies uh, that declared that the world would end on July 29th. 
happens all the time. There are all these, you know, people are constantly making predictions. In fact, you need to know that there are predictions that people have made about the end of the world that go all the way out into the future, into the year 11,120 A.D. Now, now, this brings up two issues. First, the end of the world isn't an accurate way to refer to this. Okay? It's, it's not the end of the world. It's the end of the corrupted world, but it's the beginning of a new world Without all of the sickness, disease, injustice, and all of the things that we talked about, it's the beginning of a new world, okay? Jesus is coming to renew the world. But here's the other issue, and I want you to look at verse 32, if you would. Jesus says, but about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, not even Jesus knows, but only God the Father. Now, let me ask you something. According to this verse, who on earth knows? No one knows. Does Pat Robertson know? Does the Pope know? Does Donald Trump know? Not even Jesus knows. So if you're sitting here today and you're thinking that you're going to try to predict the end of the world, listen to Jesus. No one knows. If he doesn't even know, I suspect you aren't going to know. If you hear some pastor or some Bible study leader say he or she knows, Don't be deceived by them. This is what Jesus is referring to in verse 33. He says, be on guard. Be alert. There are going to be all these people. They're going to try to lead you astray. And they're going to try to distract you from proclaiming the gospel. But he says, you don't know when that time will will come. Don't be deceived by people who think they can predict the end of the world. The biblical word for those people is nutcases. That's it. So you don't need to, don't, don't believe in them. Okay, lastly, watching for the end times. Watching for the end times. In verses 34 to 37, Jesus tells a story about a man that goes away and he puts his servants in charge of his house. And he tells one of them to keep watch for his return. Okay, he's using this as a kind of a parable. I want you to pick up the reading with me at verse 35, if you would. Jesus says um, about that man and that story, he says, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, don't let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Now, It's been over 2,000 years since Jesus uttered those words. The disciples thought that the end of human history, they thought all of this would happen during their lifetime. And in fact, for 2,000 years, people have thought and predicted that the end times were near. And yet, they all died without seeing them. It would be very easy, I think, to become cynical And to think, ah, this stuff's never going to happen. Jesus was wrong. It's never going to happen. And then to stop watching for it, hoping for it, anticipating it. And to that, Jesus says twice in this passage, keep watch. And then he concludes with watch. But what does that mean to watch for his second coming? What, what What does that mean to watch for him? Well, the idea is that we're that we're to hope for it, 
to have a sense of joyful anticipation about it, that we should be longing for Jesus' return. But I think it's fair to say that most of us don't. Would you agree? How many of you who believe in Christ could actually say today that in the last, I don't know, month, you you found yourself longing for, aching for Jesus' return, even praying for it, as in the Lord's Prayer. You know, in, in the Lord's Prayer, you say, thy kingdom come. That's what that's about. It's about the second coming. That's what... That's what that prayer is referring to. How many of you have found yourself longing for it, praying for it, hoping for it? I suspect not many of them. In fact, I'll tell you. um, I was engaged. My wife and I were engaged for like 10 months. And during that whole 10 months, I was praying, please don't come, Lord. Please don't come, Lord. Please don't come, Lord. And like on the day of the wedding, I was like, please don't come, Lord. Please don't come. All the way to the honeymoon, I was like, please don't come, Lord. Please don't come, Lord. Please don't. Not now, please. So I understand. If you're like, if you're, if you're like that and you pray, no, Lord, please don't come. Uh, I get it. A lot of us are that way. I've been watching this Netflix documentary um, called Last Chance You. Anybody, anybody seen this documentary, Last Chance You? Um, it's about a junior college in the middle of absolutely nowhere, eastern Mississippi. And they, I mean, you, you would never believe, you go through the town that it's in, it's called Scuba, Mississippi. You go through this old town, you would never expect that there would be a, a, a college there, number one, but also a college with a powerhouse football program that has like nine former players in the NFL right now. And these guys, this junior college, they win everything. Like players from enormous football programs like LSU or Ole Miss or or Auburn who get in trouble or who can't stay academically eligible often get sent to this school and it's their last chance to pull it together so that they can make it to the NFL. That's why they call it Last Chance U. The documentary follows these kids on this team around. And most of them, as you might imagine, uh, are black kids that come from crushing, crushing poverty. Like, no one they knew has had any college education. Uh, many of them, uh, their families live in essentially shacks, no air conditioning. And yet many of them have mothers and grandmothers who in the midst of all of that poverty, believe in Jesus, and they hope in Jesus. Now, I suspect, because what we're talking about here is why don't we long for the second coming? Why aren't we concerned? Why, why don't we anticipate that? Why don't we think about that? I suspect that those mothers and grandmothers, if they understood the idea of the second coming of Jesus Christ, that it's all about Jesus coming to restore and renew the world, um, to rid it, the world of poverty and injustice and racism and disease, I suspect that they would long for the second coming of Christ in the deepest part of their souls, right? But on the other hand, as I'm watching this documentary on my big screen TV, in my den, as I sit on a very comfortable couch in the air conditioning of my home with a shingled roof over it so that when it rains, I can stay dry, and with a bowl of chocolate ice cream in my hands, it is hard for me to whip up much longing for the second coming. 
The second coming of Christ is good news for people whose lives are filled with bad news. Like if you're a Christian woman living in the part, a part of the world where your husband can divorce you by text message and kick you out in the street for burning his toast, you probably long for the second coming. If you're a Christian living in sub-Sahara Africa where the AIDS virus has devastated whole populations of people, the second coming is really good news. If you're a Christian mother living in in the South Sudan, watching your, your child starve because there's not enough food to keep him alive, the second coming is really good news. But for those of us who live in relative prosperity compared to the rest of the world, inside of our protected little bubbles where we just don't feel the pain of profound injustice or the physical pain of poverty or the grinding racism that just destroys a person's spirit. For us, it's just hard to hope for the second coming. Now, I'm not trying to, you know, when I say that, I, I'm not trying to sling guilt. That, that's not my style. More importantly, that's not Jesus' style. But when Jesus says watch in this passage, I think a part of what he means is to watch out for the self-absorption that comes with living in this culture, with every day living only for yourself and for your success and for your needs. Be on guard against that self-absorption. And here's the way that you can apply all of this. Pray that God would open your eyes and expand your heart and give you the courage to see the suffering of the world around you and to feel compassion for people. Watch out, I think he's saying in part, for hard-hearted cynicism. Get rid of the self-absorption that keeps you from wanting the second coming because the world so needs this. At the second coming of Jesus... Every wrong in the world will be made right. The world needs this. Watch, Jesus says, watch. Keep watch. I know it's been 2,000 years, but keep watch. Don't let yourself become so self-absorbed that you don't even think about the needs of the world. To have the whole world renewed in the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know what the irony of all this is? The irony is that the one who at his second coming will bring the justice of God and the healing of God and the presence of God to the world, that one, the Lord Jesus Christ, at his first coming, at his first coming, he experienced only injustice. At his first coming, he found no healing for his own wounds at the moment of his deepest need. And in his first coming at the moment of his deepest need, he experienced the absence of God, not the presence of God. As he suffered on a Roman cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the irony of this whole thing. Why? Why Why was he subjected to this? And the answer is, because there was no other way for my sin, your sin, to be forgiven. He paid our penalty so that we can get the presence of God, so that we can experience the love of God, so that we can get the life of God, so that we can get the healing of God. 
Here's the gospel. That the great king of the universe was willing to die for us. We're going to celebrate communion together as a church now. And this is what we celebrate. The fact that the one who is going to come, who's going to be the king of the universe, who is the king of the universe, and who will come and reign one day, we're celebrating the fact that on the cross, he died for us. I'm going to ask the ushers, if you guys would go ahead, you guys and gals, if you guys would come on, go ahead and come on up and I want you to pass out the elements to communion. And here's what we do here. Here's how we practice communion at our church. Uh, first of all, we practice open communion. So whether you, you know, whether this is your first time at City Church or you've been coming for a long time, doesn't matter. You can take communion with us. The other thing that's going to happen is that when we pass out these elements, we're just going to ask you to hold them. They'll pass out uh, the bread and then they'll pass out the cup. And we're just going to ask you to hold those elements. And then I'm going to come back up and we will take those elements together. And uh, while they're passing them out, uh, the band is going to play. And then, as I said, I'll come back up and I'll close this out in just a few moments.